Our reading this morning is Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10 to 7, 14, if you want to turn with me. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after, after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of, of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Sorry, yeah. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, let me ask you a question this morning. Um, if you could change one thing about uh, your life, what would you change? If you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? Might be the place that you live, although with this weather, who wouldn't want to live here now? Um, but what is it this morning? If you could change one thing, what is it that you would want to change? Something physical? Maybe you're, you wish you were taller. Maybe you wish you were shorter. Um, maybe you wish you were thinner. Maybe something mental. Um, maybe you wish you weren't as smart as you were because it's a burden to be so intelligent. <laughs> That's how you feel, mate? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, maybe it's something emotional. Maybe a past hurt in your life, um, a deep wound that you wish wasn't there. What would it be? Um, that you would change in your life? Because my guess is some of us, most of us, all of us probably have something in our life that we would like to see different, uh, that, that we wish was just different than it is, um, that we could change. Um, and yet we struggle to change some of those things, and some of those things, to be honest, can't, can't be changed. Um, I could probably be a little thinner. Um, that is probably on me, um, but my height, my bone structure, my body type, is what it is. That's not going to change. I can change some of the things uh, about those things with uh, diet and exercise and healthy living. 
Um, but I can't fundamentally change the structure of who I am. And that can be frustrating to us, can it? It can be frustrating to have things in life that we think are crooked, that we want to see straightened out and not be able to do that. Or things that just seem out of our control. Um, Things that we wish that we could control in our life uh, that we can't. Um, How many of you tend to be more on the like control freak side of things? Right? Okay, yeah, okay. A few of you are happy to put your hand up on that, right? Other people are like nudging their spouse, and like, right? Uh, I would be nudging my spouse now, right, if she were here. So, uh, right, you, you tend to get pleasure out of things that you can control, um, a life well-ordered. And then there's some of us on the other side that are like, oh, why bother controlling everything? You know, everything's out of control. Just, just go with it. Um, and for whatever reason, these people end up getting married, like my wife and I, and, and we help each other. We help each other. Um, but here we have in, in, these opening, in this opening section of where we left, left off last time in Ecclesiastes, uh, where he says this, whatever has come to be has already been named. It's already, it's already been named. It's already been called into existence in that sense. And what is known, uh, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And the stronger one in this passage that he's referring to is God himself, that we are unable to dispute with the person that is stronger than us. The more words, the more we try to argue, the more we try to build our case, he says the more vanity it is, the more hevel it is, the more useless it is, and and it is to no advantage of us. And he asks these questions, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And the expected answer to those answers, uh, questions is no one. No, no one knows. And he uses this refrain that we've seen over and over again, this theme under the sun. This, this phrase that's used over and over of, of a life described uh, apart from God, uh, a divorced from God, uh, from, from our perspective under the sun. And every now and then he'll lift us above kind of the tapestry. Remember we said it's like looking at the back of a tapestry. It doesn't make any sense. There's all of these kind of strings that, that go together, but, but there's no coherence in that until you go above and see the other side of the tapestry, and then there's this beautiful picture that's painted for us. But he says life under the sun, a life disconnected from the purview of God, from God's experience, from the way that God sees things, there's no really advantage. There's no way to be able to dispute. Whatever has come has already come. And who knows what will come after us? He seems to be frustrated, as all of us, with this kind of lack of control. And this is one of the great themes of Ecclesiastes, that life eludes our control. That much of life is out of our control. We can plan our days. We can make plans. The Bible actually says that's a good thing to do, that that we should kind of plan, that we should uh, count the cost on things, but that we should do that with the recognition that none of those things are guaranteed. That life, as James would actually say, is like a vapor. The life itself is it's here. It's a mist. It's gone. It's hevel is the, is the word that's used here. It's vanity. And so the question is, then, how do, you live, how do you live your life if that's the case? How do you live a life when much of it is out of our control? And uh, Solomon here is going to bring us back to this idea of wisdom. 
You'll see him over and over again. Um, the, the next chapters, really from 7 to 11, have some repetitive kind of themes that go through it. And one of them is this idea of a life of wisdom contrasted with a life of, of foolishness or folly. And so let's look at some of these things here. We see this kind of source, uh, the source of wisdom. And, and the section that we just like, looked at is a section of prose. And then it moves into the section of kind of poetry um, that will feel familiar because it'll feel like Proverbs. Um, because that's essentially what they are, this proverbial wisdom. And we see that section marked off by this phrase that he uses, better than. So there's, there's a way that is better than a different kind of way. There's a way to think that is better than a different way to think. There's a way to pursue things better than a different way to pursue things. Um, and so let's look at this. Because Solomon seems to be teetering in his faith because living by God's wisdom doesn't always seem to produce the outcome that he desires. Right Now, when we say that one way is better than the other way, then we assume the way that is better gets us what we want. That's what makes it a better way. And yet Solomon will say, actually, the way of God's wisdom doesn't always produce the outcome that we desire. Look at what he says in verse, uh, in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And this can drive us away from God. Well, what's the use then of living a righteous life if I'm just gonna die early anyway when the guy who lives a wicked life seems to prolong his life by his wickedness or in his wickedness? And so there's, this can drive us away from God or it can drive us towards God. And we're going to look at this tension this morning. How do we actually see this? Because there is a design in the way that God made things. God has not made things accidentally. He's made them purposefully. He's made them with a certain design. And, and so God made the world to work a certain way. Now, we know that that way has been broken, that way has been fractured because of our rebellion against God in, the, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. But even so, he's made the way to work a certain way and that we should live our life in that way and according to that way. And this is what we call biblical wisdom. Um, not earthly wisdom, not wisdom that we kind of figure out, not kind of a common sense, but an actual biblically uh, wise way to live. And so after this section of prose, we get into the prophetic, uh, poetic kind of proverbs. And um, he's going to uh, say this. Being wise is a better way to live, and yet there's a part of being wise that knows that wisdom has its limitations. This is how, he, this is how Job, um, when I read this section of, of, of Ecclesiastes, I think of Job, this, this opening section of like arguing against God. Who can argue against the stronger man? Because that's exactly what Job does. Job builds out his case that he's lived a godly life, that he's, he's lived a righteous life, and yet it has gone horribly wrong, and that he's lost everything. Even his own wife is like, just curse God and die. And he builds this case, and then this is what he says. From where then does wisdom come? This is the question that we're asking here. Where does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And then he gives us the answer. It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. 
Job will say there are certain things about living a wise way. You can live as wise as you can, and yet there will still be things that in God's wisdom are concealed from you. There will be still things that we can't understand. There will be still things that we can't make sense of. And even in the midst of that, the wise person will understand that, understand that he doesn't know everything, and he will live his life a better way. And so thinking we know enough to control our own lives is simply an illusion. It's just not true. When we try to get a fully satisfying grip on things, we discover that ultimately wisdom then is from God. Understanding then is from God. We can't have the full measure of it. We can have some. That's why we're actually commanded in, in, in the Bible to ask for it, that God might give it to us because he is the one who is the source of it. And so how do we live then a life that is more wise? Um, and so in, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, a good name is better than, there's that phrase, um, precious ointment. And we're like, okay, great. I, I, can get, I can understand that. A good name is better than a precious ointment. Your reputation, your character, your integrity is more important. Those things that make up who you are on the inside is more important than how you smell on the outside. You're like, great. That makes sense. But then he keeps going. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Uh, now you've lost me. <laughs> uh, now I got the first part of that, but now, now you've lost me. Uh, what do you mean the day of death is better than the day of birth? I've, I've had three kids. Those were pretty great days. I'd rather be in a maternity ward than a terminal cancer ward. Surely, right? Surely that's the better place to be. And so what does he mean by this? Well, there's a, a couple different things. For the Christian... Birth is really about potential. <clears throat> you have the potential of all of this life. But death is really about fulfillment. It is in death that all of the promises that are yes and amen are fulfilled to us in Christ. It's only at death does anyone perfectly receive all that Christ has won for them. This is what Paul wrestles with in the New Testament, right? He has this dilemma. He's like, is it better for me to stay and be able to minister to you? Is it better for me to stay and plant churches? Is it better for me to be able to teach and encourage and build up the church? Or is it better for me to, to die and be with Christ? The end of pain, the end of, of all of my sorrow, the end of suffering. <laughs> Which one of those is better? And he says, well, to live is Christ, but to die is actually gain that you actually gain things in death that you would never gain in your birth. Now, that's not the perspective under the sun. You, we have to rise above and transcend that, right? That's the Christian's perspective. But I, I think that might be going a little too far and in reading into what the text is actually saying, what he's, what he's actually going for. I think what, what the teacher, the preacher here, wants us to see is that the day of your death is a better teacher than the day of your birth. The day of your death is a better teacher. When you're born, there's really, I mean, what do you say about a newborn baby? <clears throat> well, he looks like his mom. Uh, he looks like his dad. And, and that's, he's cute, hopefully. <laughs> and, and that's about it. Like, you don't know anything about him. They don't have any personality. They don't, I mean, they don't, they don't, right? There's not, there's not much to actually say. You can say all kinds of things about the parents. But what about at a funeral? At death, 
What do we have to say about people? Lots. Right? We eulogize them. They were, she was so much like Jesus. She was so kind. She was generous. She was loving. Or she lived for herself. She was stingy, angry, died alone. Whatever it may be, good or bad, there are things to say and to learn from that. And this is what he goes on to explain in verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the, go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You will learn Um, he says, the wise person, by going to a funeral rather than a party. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He says the coffin is a better evangelist than the cot. Because at a funeral you have to think about your impending funeral. Um, I, I lived this reality out two weeks ago. So um, two Fridays ago, Friday night, looking forward to it. We had our volunteers dinner here, had a big party planned. Um, tables were all set. <clears throat> John had been working hard all week. We'd been working on stuff. Um, there was uh, good food, good drink, um, good company, and some really dodgy karaoke that went down that night. And, and we were looking forward to it. Um, I even got a wee tux. And, and all sorts of silliness, right? And, 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 and that had been planned for months. And then you find out two days before that, oh, no, you actually have a funeral at noon that same day. Um, and went to my great aunt's uh, funeral. Um, she lived a, a long uh, life. Um, was like a second granny to me. She was great. Um, but those were two very contrasting parts of the day. To sit in a in a Presbyterian church down in Bestbrook, full of people in dark suits, listening to a preacher talk about death and our need um, for Christ. The atmosphere was completely different. And then literally hours later to transition and to take off funeral clothes and to put on party clothes and then enter into that atmosphere. Two completely different atmospheres. Now, one was way more enjoyable than the other, but one was much more deeper and significant of what was happening in the thought life than the other. And, and, and he's not being a party pooper here. He's not saying don't ever go to parties. We should, right? He, he, he'll actually tell us, enjoy your life that, that God has given you. Be, be content in that. You should enjoy the, the food and the drink. You should work hard and enjoy the life he's given you. But what he says is the cot isn't as good a teacher as the coffin is. The wise person, he says, when they go to a funeral will think about themselves. When will it be my turn? What will my life have counted for? What, could have, what, could, what will be said about me? The, the fool sits in the funeral and thinks, when will we get this over with? When can we get back out into the sunshine? When can we head down to the pub? And the teacher says, here, listen, there's a better way to think about life, and it's not normally the kind that we want to think about. He goes on in verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the fools. Better to hear rebuke, correction from a wise person than to just stick in the earbuds and listen to the latest playlist. We don't... 
We don't like rebuke in our lives. We don't like people pointing out things in our lives that could be improved or corrected. And yet, Solomon says the wise person will actually listen to those things. I would even say pursue those things. Why is that? Why are these things the way that they are? Why is it better to go to a funeral? Why is it better to have someone be really honest with you than just ignore it and listen to to music of fools? Verse 6, for the crackling of thorns, for as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. (laughs) It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's like thorns under, uh, trying to cook. He says there's this pot with thorns underneath it. Uh, And if you know anything about starting fires, thorns are great kindling. They start really quickly. They flash up. There's a lot of crackling. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of fire but it, there's not actually a lot of heat, <laughs> and they, it dies out really quickly. Great to get things started, but you need the logs of wisdom to actually be able to sustain a fire that will actually be worth cooking on. And this is what he says. The laughter of fools, it sounds the same. There's a wordplay in Hebrew that's going on there. This crackling and cackling that's taking place. You say, well, is this a kind of a morbid, a morbid way to look at life? I mean, it's sunny out, rendering into the summer, like we're teetering on getting ready to go on holiday. Let's think about this, you know, after the summer's over. Maybe this is kind of a morbid way. But he says, no, this is actually, this is a life characterized by depth of soul, by depth of character. Superficiality is the mark of an escapist in denial. Now, there's a part of going on holiday in the summer that is a bit of escapism, right? Well, that's not true. If it is escapism, it's not much of a holiday because it doesn't last. If it's a holiday of rest and purpose, purposeful rest, purposeful recreation, um, the way that God actually intended those things to be, then great. But that doesn't happen by just ignoring life. Escapism doesn't last because in the back of your mind, you know all the things that are still there that you're trying to escape from. That's why as you approach the end of a holiday, you start to feel down already when you're still on holiday. Um, uh, Experts, I'm listening to this this book on on rest and and stuff like that. And uh, um, scientists have said they've done all these studies and and whatever. And we kind of peak our enjoyment uh, of, of our holidays, peaks around day eight or nine. And then from there, it either kind of uh, plateaus or it starts to go in decline. So take a 10-day vacation and you're, and you're set. Um, they actually said you should take more vacations, but shorter. Take them more often, but that's up to you. Right? But there's this idea that, that, that escapism, but this isn't escapism. He's not being morbid here. He's looking life right down the barrel of the gun and saying there's a wise way to approach that. And going to a funeral helps calibrate uh, our life and understanding of that we're not going to live forever. Um, when I was young, back in the 80s, there was this TV show called Fame. And that was the tagline. Remember Fame? I'm going to live forever. And then, um, then they remade that recently. So most of you are probably only young enough to realize that that was a remake. Um, but there was an original one back in the 80s. And when they remade it, guess what? Not the same actors. Ooh, why is that? <laughs> Because you're not going to live forever. 
The, if they would have got the original actors, they now have cellulite. Their legs don't dance the same way they used to. Some of them might not even be alive because life just keeps moving on. We get old, we age, and we eventually die. And death is an invitation to be a person who realizes that living a good life means living life backwards, preparing to die a good death and to thinking about that day and to reverse engineer our way back. But this idea of wisdom does have its limitations, and he's honest about those things as well. It's important to notice the balanced view that, that Solomon, that, that the teacher of this passage gives us. He tried to use wisdom to tie up all the loose ends. Remember, this is the wisest person. He's been given an extra measure of God's wisdom. And even he couldn't tie up all the loose ends. Look at verses 23 and 24 of chapter 7. All this I tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He says the same things that Job says. Ultimately, human wisdom is limited because we are under the sun. Only God is infinitely wise. But that doesn't mean that wisdom is useless. And so there are certain ways of living that are better. There are certain courses of actions that are better than others. And so verse 7 Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Wisdom, especially with money, can be corrupted. And so he says, use money with integrity. Bribes, extortion are oppressive. They actually oppress people. And this is what death teaches us, that there's a limit to money. What are you going to do with it when you die? Line your casket with it? You can't take it with you. And we looked at all of that last week. In verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There's a better way to live. And patience is better than being um, prideful and wanting to run ahead. Some things that don't look promising in the beginning actually turn out to be really good. If we'll be patient. If we allow things to run their course and not be prideful. Um, the old prophet actually uses this language. They were rebuilding the temple the second time and they had got started, but the people just were like, this isn't gonna be as good as the first one. This isn't gonna be as, as majestic as the first one. And his, his word to them is don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Most of you are still really young, in first career. Maybe your career's not going the way you wanted to. Maybe it just hasn't really started the way that you wanted to. He says, be patient. The, the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. That's true even for us here at Village. We started with six of us in a living room. Nothing really spectacular about that. And, and just being patient and allowing God to do what he was doing, to allow the spirit to draw people to himself, to mature us together as a group of people. And now, you know, six years later, however long it's been, you know, over 200 of us together, getting ready to plant a second congregation. And that's not to pat ourselves on the back. That's just saying that this is actually true. You can be prideful and be like, you know what, this isn't going the way that we want it to. This isn't going as fast as we want to. This isn't as successful by all the metrics that we think are, it should be. 
And he just says, no, don't be prideful like that. Be patient in spirit. This is exactly the life of Jesus, is it not? A stable in Bethlehem with a bunch of shepherds, really? This is how the king of kings is gonna come? But the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And uh, we know how it ends, and it doesn't end in a stable this time. And so we be patient, and we trust the one who actually knows. Verse 10. Say not, where were the former, where, where, uh, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask these things. Here we, he looks at, at becoming cynical, and we start to pine for the past. This is an overindulgent nostalgia. Um, this is when we, we look to the past and go, oh, remember the good old days. Man, why, why can't today be like it used to be? Our world is such a mess, right? We turn on the news, and we're like, boy, when I was a kid, it didn't used to be this bad. And we want to kind of live in the past. This is exactly what the children of, Egypt, uh, of Israel did. They're in, like, slavery. Um, they're being beaten. They're, they're just uh, manual labor. And God rescues them miraculously out of Egypt, takes them out of captivity, and it's not long before they're going, man, remember that, was, that leek soup that we had back in Egypt? Ooh, that was good soup. Wish we could go back there. You're like, really? <laughs> Where you were slaves and beaten and owned as property? But that's us, isn't it? We just, we have really short memories. We tend to overemphasize the bad things in our present and minimize the bad things in our past. We don't see what is good right in front of us. We only see what is good in the past. But the good old days, as I said before, ended in Genesis chapter three. The good old days were Genesis one and two, that's it. From then, there's been no good old days. Sin has marred us all. And so we have to trust one of the best ways to tell if you're trusting God's timing is to see how angry you get when things don't go your way. Easy to say we trust the Lord when things are going great, when things are right on schedule, when things are going just as we had, had planned for us. But what about when things start to deviate from that? What about when, when your life isn't going the way that you want it to go? What if, if the timing of your life isn't quite where you, where you would like it to be? One of the ways that you can tell if you're really trusting God is how angry you get in that moment. And this is verse nine. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. It, it gets stuck. You get stuck in a place of anger, being angry against God because he's not doing in your life what you want him to do. My life seems out of control. I can't control these things. And God is nowhere to be seen to come in and fix it, which is his job, Right? And we become anger, angry, and anger leads to bitterness. We become embittered to the Lord, and we've seen people walk away from their faith because God just wasn't the genie in the lamp that they thought he would be. And Solomon says, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry because that is a path that will lead you down that's very hard to come back from. It lodges in the heart. So there is a better way to live. We don't know everything. Only God does. God is sovereign over all. We sing the words of that song, immortal, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And so there is value in that. There is value in, in the wisdom that comes from God. In verse 11, wisdom is good 
with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life who has it. Now, he says wisdom is like an insurance policy. It's like a protection that money provides. After all of what he said last week about money, it doesn't last it doesn't make us happy. You can't take it with you, et cetera, et cetera. He admits it does provide some protection against difficulties of daily life, and we know that to be true, right? Money isn't everything, but it, it, it helps. It helps some. And he, he compares wisdom to that. Wisdom also helps. It's not an absolute guarantee, but it does help. Wise living preserves our life. Verse 12 The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. True spiritual wisdom gives us spiritual vitality. As long as we live and and when it comes time to die, it leads us into everlasting life. Living a wise life the way that God has intended us to, to live does preserve our life. Whether in this life or not, it preserves it ultimately and eternally. And look what it goes on to say then in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything there is, a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. But this is opposite, isn't it? If we're really honest, and, and, and this might, if you're not a Christian here today, you're, you might be uh, seeking things out, but this is often why people who don't believe in God don't believe in God. This is the opposite of what we expect in a world that's supposed to be governed by a good and righteous God. If the world is governed by a good and righteous God, then surely those who are good and righteous get the rewards, and those who are evil and wicked get the punishment. And yet Solomon says it's not always that way. It's always, it's, sometimes it seems like it's the opposite way. And so then he says this in verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, what's he getting at here? All this be wise, it's better to live this way, it's better to live a wise life, it's limited, but don't be too wise. Is he just being cynical? Is he just saying live this moderate life is best, don't be overly one way or overly the other, be just good enough to, you know, hopefully be good enough to get through this life and maybe into the next If the righteous perish while the wicked prosper, don't kill yourself trying to be too holy. And if fools die young, don't be too foolish either. Is this just the safest kind of path to walk? Generally be a good person. Be nice. And that's probably the safest kind of path to be. Now, that is kind of wisdom from under the sun, right? And there probably is actually some truth in that wisdom under the sun. But there's there's an alternative way that we think about this as well and the way that the Hebrew language is used in this passage. He may actually be telling us not to be self-righteous when he says overly righteous. The verb that he uses in verse 16 may refer to someone who's only pretending to be wise. They don't have true righteousness that comes by faith. They have a hypocritical holiness that comes by works. 
And this would make more sense. This is certainly the lesson to be learned above the sun then, right? Because if God's standard is perfection and we are called to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, strength, and mind, then how can you be overly righteous? Our problem is often that we think of ourselves holier than we actually are. But I think the message is don't be self-righteous. Don't be overly righteous in ourselves, depending on our own wisdom to save you. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The right path, from God's perspective, above the sun, is the path between self-righteousness on one hand and wickedness on the other. This is where the gospel leads us. This is the gospel path. Wickedness. Who cares if there's a God or not? There probably isn't. Let's just live our life as best we can. It does, it's survival of the fittest. If we have to be oppressive to work our way up the next rung, then so be it. Whether we would consciously express any of that or not. We just live for ourselves, completely unhinged. Or there's the other side. We see this kind of pharisaical side in the New Testament, where we will try to keep all these laws, all these commands to try to somehow um, woo God into giving us the good life. Look, I've done all of these things, like the older brother. Where's my fatted calf? Where's my ring? Where's my purple road? I've earned these things. And we treat God like some kind of vending machine. If you'll just put in the right amount, then you'll get out the blessings that you want. And Solomon's like, mm, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't. The path that you come out from both of those is the one who fears God, who understands who he is in relation to God, who she is in relation to God, who, who understands that their wisdom is limited and that God's wisdom is unlimited and will live a life of wisdom according to what God has revealed to us in his word, through the Holy Spirit, in the life of Christ, knowing that it might not always end exactly the way that we want, but it always will end up for our good. In this life or the next. He goes on to admit this in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's the same thing that Paul tells us in Romans. This is all of us. All of us are unrighteous. It is God only wise. This is what he says in verse 23. All I've tested by wisdom. I've said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He says this is, this is the task I've sent for my life. I want to know how to live a life of meaning, a life of purpose. And you see his frustration all throughout this letter, isn't it? The life of foolishness is hevel. It's meaningless. A life of, of overly righteousness, self-righteousness, it doesn't get you anywhere either. It's, it's, it's like vapor. Look at verse 13. This is what he wants us to consider so we draw this to a close. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
Answer, no one. You can't straighten out what God has made crooked. Only he can do that. You say, well, why is that? Why would God make things crooked? Why would God frustrate? Why wouldn't God just give us everything that we think that we need? Well, a few reasons. This isn't exhaustive. One, the crooked things in life are a test to help us determine whether we're really trusting in Christ for our own salvation or not. If everything just goes smooth, how do you know that you're not just in this to get stuff for you, that it's not really just a self-serving purpose that we're actually doing this for. It's when those crooked time comes that we bail on God that revealed we were never in this for the right reasons in the first place. This was just a self-serving exercise. We've now just ditched God to go do the same thing but on our own without the ruse of religion in front of it. It reveals whether we're really holding on to Jesus or not. Secondly, whatever uh, crooks there are in our earthly lives turn our hearts away from the world and heaven, these fleeting kind of things, and teach us to look for our happiness in the eternal life to come. Will we be satisfied with the lot in life, to use the words of Solomon, that God has given us? Will we be content in those moments, whether they're crooked or straight? And when we do in those crooked times, it turns our hearts toward Christ. It turns our hearts toward God for our satisfaction so that we can be content even in times where the world is discontent. This is where we end up where Paul does. Whether, whether he had a lot or whether, whether he had little, it didn't matter, he had Christ. He was content because he had all that he ever would need in Jesus. Thirdly, the crooked things in life convict us of our sin. Look at verse 22. Your hearts know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Sorry, look at verse 21. Uh, don't take it to heart all the things that people say, lest, you're, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You overhear someone bad-mouthing you, talking bad about you. He says, don't take that to heart. Why? Because you've done the same thing. You, you've done the same thing. <laughs> the crooked things in life convict us of our own sin. When you're sinned against, We have to stop and go, but I've, I've done the same thing. I've sinned against other people in the same way. I'm not an innocent party here. None of us are. He's already said that there's no one that's, that's righteous and without sin. We are all sinners being sinned against and sinning against other people. And that mess should help us look inward and realize that, that we have sinned against other people. It should cause us to be more forgiving, more gracious. Fourthly, then, the crooked things in life may correct us <clears throat> for our sins. Sometimes, not all the times, listen now, be careful, not all, but sometimes our suffering, sometimes the crooked things in our life are an instrument of God's justice or they're a consequence of our sin. And so what's the final word of the matter? The center of all of this um, that I want us to look at and finish with is verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Be happy. Hey, when it's time to go to a party, party well. When life is going good, enjoy it. If your life is prosperous, be happy in that. 
And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. When life is going well, be joyful and see that as a gift from the hand of God. When it's a day of adversity, he doesn't say, now, he doesn't say be joyful. (laughs) Solomon's a little more measured, isn't he? He's a little more of a realist. But he does say consider that both of those things are from God. Both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity are both from God. And that's hard, isn't it? That's, that's the hard graft of the Christian life. Happy to praise the Lord when things are well. Recognizing that when things aren't so well, when you get that call from the doctor, when it is the day of a funeral, that those things are also from the Lord, that he is sovereign over all of these things. And whenever that's hard for us to understand, because it is, let's just be honest with that. It's hard. Pain blurs our vision. It's not easy to see the truths of of the big picture, which is why we need each other in the right and appropriate times. Sometimes you just need to sit and cry with your friend. But when it's right and appropriate, we help remind each other of the big picture. We help remind each other that nothing is outside of of control of God. And whenever we're having trouble believing that God knows what he is doing, all we have to do is look to our Savior. He is the good shepherd who had a crook in his lot in life as well. What's extremely unfair uh, from Solomon's perspective here, he says, there's been no one who's righteous and without sin. So we kind of all have this coming to us. But with Jesus, that wasn't the case. And yet his life still had a crooked part in it, a cross-shaped crook. And you see Jesus in Gethsemane praying That his father, if there's any way, will you straighten this out? Will you straighten this path out? Three times asking. And the answer is no. This is a path, as crooked as it is, as cruciform shape as it takes, that you have to take. Jesus sees the work of God, knowing the only way to make atonement for his people, for, for our sin, is to die in their place. And so Jesus suffers the crooked cross and trusts his father to straighten things out when the time is right by raising him on the third day. The ending is better than the beginning. So, to go back to our question, would you change that thing? Did you change that thing that at the beginning we thought about that you'd want to change? Or to ask it like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, are you trying to make straight what God has made crooked? Jesus would say it to us this way this morning. Remember my love for you. That's what we're going to do in a minute with bread and wine. Remember my love for you through the crooked cross and trust our Father to work everything out in his good time. This is faced with this reality once again of the sovereignty of God. And in that, there's a way to live 
by fearing God, recognizing that sovereignty, recognizing that he is wise, that we are not, asking for his wisdom, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of wisdom so far as we can. Not a life of debauchery and evil, rejecting God. Not a life of taking righteousness into our own hands, but walking right down this crooked gospel path, right into whatever God has for us, whatever our lot in life. Recognizing that some of those days will be good and prosperous. The sun will shine like it's never shown before with no evidence of it stopping, at least in the next 10-day forecast, praise the Lord. But trust me, January is coming. Winter is coming. (laughs) And that's true. And so we enjoy the moment now, praising God that it came from his hand. And when December rolls around, after Boxing Day is over and it's that long stretch to time change again, that came from God's hand too. And maybe it's more serious than seasonal stuff that you're going through today. But can I just plead with you like Solomon to lean further into the one who knows? That's where the answers are found. They're not found anywhere else. Who can argue against? Who can dispute with the one who is stronger than he? The more you do, the more vanity it is. Let's come before the Lord, recognizing and fearing his sovereignty, his goodness um, to us, knowing him and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever today may bring forth for us as we come to the table. Let's pray.